So good morning, everyone. Wonderful to see you all today. And for those of you joining us online, I'm Pastor Joel. Welcome to Heart City Church. I'm so honored to be able to serve you. We've been journeying with Jesus through Luke's gospel, and today we come to Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. I would invite you to turn there in your Bibles. It's also provided to you in your bulletin on page 5. Before we read, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have heard of Isidore Isaac Rabi? See, zero hands. Nobody has heard of Isidore Isaac Rabi. Isidore was the 1944 Nobel Prize winner for physics. And you have benefited from his research probably this morning. Any of you used the microwave this morning? How about that atomic clock in the back? Have you ever looked at that for the time? And have you had an MRI recently? These technologies are all the results of Isaac Rabi's particle physics research. He was a brilliant man. I bring him up because he was once asked a question, why he was so successful? Why was he so brilliant? And he said, for one reason alone. He said, when I was a little boy growing up, all the other mothers would ask their children this question after school. So what did you learn today? Children, have you ever been asked that question? What did you learn today at school? Yeah. Well, you may want to ask them to ask you a different question. Isaac said the single reason for his success was that his mother never asked him what he had learned. She always asked him this. So... Isidore, did you ask your teachers any good questions today? Did you ask your teachers any good questions today? He was encouraged daily to ask good questions of his teachers. And learning to think changed him and actually all of our world. We come here every Sunday to sit at the feet of our good teacher, Jesus. The question for you is, did you come here to Jesus with an inquiring mind and a willingness to learn. In today's text, actually, the good teacher will be asked a good question. So let's pray before we read that God will open our minds and our hearts to take in the answer. And who knows what benefits may come to us and the world around us to the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you know our hearts. You know all that's going on inside of us. You know we're searching for answers. I ask and pray that we will be humble enough and take up an appropriate posture right now as your creatures that we may actually receive answers that will be for your glory, for our good, and for the good of our neighbors. Have mercy. Our time is so short, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, that's Jesus, good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. 
sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. I count it a very great privilege to share the good news found in this old book. Not just here. I do seek opportunities outside the church. I don't fly very often, but when I do, and when I'm not flying with my wife, I hope and sometimes pray for turbulence. You ever been at 35,000 feet, and you hit some air that causes the plane to drop suddenly? The plane getting upset often will upset the neighbor sitting beside you. This is the perfect opportunity to ask them, so do you believe in heaven? And if they say yes, the follow-up question is, so how do you think we get there? That's a good question about a matter of ultimate importance, but not one I find being asked very often. Most folks are asking the question, how can I enjoy my short life? Rather than, how can I be preparing for a long eternity? Sometimes it takes a wake-up call like being up in the air at 35,000 feet and realizing that your arms cannot flap fast enough to keep you from crashing to earth that will lead you to the most important question you can ask while we still can. Sometimes there's no apparent crisis that sparks an important question that will lead a person to Jesus. I'm not sure what category you fall in this morning, but I trust you came here with questions about life, death, God, eternity. And the Christian faith is not one where we check our brains at the door. Christians are to be thinking people who are wrestling through the truths of this reality we live in, who God is, and what the Word says is true. Now, this rich ruler that we find, he actually falls into the category of the person who has no immediate crisis that we can see. In fact, he seems to be flying in first class with his whole life altogether. He's in a good position as a ruler, He is wealthy, and we hear from his testimony, he is an upstanding citizen, and Jesus doesn't argue with him about that. There's no apparent crisis that prompts him to come and sincerely ask Jesus a good question. And I say sincerely because Jesus was actually asked this question back in chapter 10 by a man looking to test him. That's not what's going on here. Friends, this ruler is sincere in coming to Jesus with a good question that is apparently pressing on him. That he is sad at the answer tells us that this question actually sprang up from his heart. Verse 18, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? 
No one is good except God alone. I find this scene remarkable for a couple reasons. First, I rarely get folks who walk up off the street out of the blue to me to ask me a good question about eternity. But I do get it usually. In fact, this morning, as I got to the church, help me with this temporal problem. When I do get prompt, when I do actually try to prompt questions about eternity, actually most people already have it all figured out. That's what I found. Second, if someone actually did walk in off the street out of the blue with a good question like this, I don't think I would do what Jesus does here. See, I've got a lot of books on evangelism, a whole shelf of them. And apparently Jesus didn't read any of them. Because none of them encouraged challenging the polite address of the seeker, nor to start quoting the law at them as a way to eternal life. What's going on here? Well, friends, I'm not Jesus. And Jesus knows this man better than he knows himself. So Jesus asks a better question to help him think through his good question. This is what Jesus often does when a person comes sincerely seeking help. You see, folks rarely come to Jesus with a full handle on what their real problem is. Any of you first come to faith fully aware of what your biggest problem was? I see no hands. We often come to Jesus and we come because maybe we're thinking the biggest problem is this evil world that I need rescue from. Or maybe our biggest problem is the bad habits, the bad attitudes that I need to lose. Maybe my biggest problem is I just got a bumpy journey that I'm on and boy, it'd be nice to have Jesus as my co-pilot. Maybe it's some other issue. But the fact is we probably didn't really understand who Jesus was. Nor the problems that we were bringing to Jesus were just symptoms of a lethal disease that was actually destroying us. Perhaps Jesus answered you when you first came to him. Let me ask you, did you stop there? (laughs) No. He continued to work it. Maybe he answered that problem, but then maybe he gave you new problems (laughs) and new questions. We noted last week that this ruler's premise to his question is all wrong. You don't do anything to inherit eternal life. Someone else has to do something, namely die, in order for you to inherit. In fact, that is why Jesus came. To die on the cross so that all who believed in him might inherit eternal life. Heaven is God's gift to the unworthy, to helpless sinners. And that's been the whole big point of Luke 18. But this man wants to earn it. So his trust in his own goodness, his own ability, his accomplishments are his first problem. Maybe you've seen uh, those pictures of, in the earliest 20th century, those inventors who were tr- wanted to fly, those fellows who would maybe strap on wings or maybe put them on a bike, you know, and they pedal hard enough, they are confident they can take off. Well, that's this guy. He thinks he can achieve heavenly liftoff with just a little Jesus guidance. And Jesus sees him pedaling towards a cliff. And that's why he does this redirect. That's why Jesus' first response, it may respond, surprise us. I mean, is Jesus denying his goodness? Is Jesus denying his godness? Actually, Jesus is neither denying that he is good nor that he is God. He's asking the question because he sees a soul satisfied in his own goodness and believing that God rewards good people. God gives nice guys eternal life. Actually, that's what most people today believe including most Christians, according to recent polls. Nice guys and gals get to heaven. 
C.S. Lewis has this great chapter towards the end of his book in Mere Christianity called Nice Men and New Men. Nice Men and New Men. And he's answering the critic, the critique that some unbelievers are actually a lot nicer than Christians. And he argues that any goodness, any niceness that a person has is actually a gift from God, not their own. See, showing actually the premise of their argument is partly flawed. You see, God actually does give some folks a good temperament or a better upbringing than others. And so good conduct comes easy to them. Perhaps you're one of these. And they, what happens, you begin to think that your goodness is actually your own doing. And as a result, you don't really feel the need for much better goodness. Any of you ever feel prone to that? Ever feel like wanting credit for your own goodness as you look around at others? Meanwhile, we have some folks here who are easily tripped up by temptations, by snares, by fears, and have had a bad upbringing. And the moment they attempt to do any good, ah, what happens? They discover, I don't have it in me. Anyone feeling the spotlight on them? Dear soul, you're actually in an advantage because you know you need outside help for you to do any good. This ruler is coming with a sincere question, but he's got a real problem. He senses all he needs is just a little more guidance to ace his already goodness. He suffers from a fatal condition that began when mankind rebelled in the Garden of Eden. His problem is he has too high a view of self and too low a view of God and God's goodness. Earlier we read from Psalm 14 where God looks down. Do you know what God sees? None does good. Not even one person. Jesus may well be hinting right here. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Are you calling me God? Wink, wink. Which actually Jesus makes clear later on when Jesus calls this man to absolute allegiance that only should be given to God. That's why Jesus changes the focus from what the ruler must do to the goodness of God. See how he's reframing the argument, the question? And then he begins to recite the second half of the Ten Commandments, which focus all on love of neighbor, the horizontal. You know the commandments, verse 20. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. To which the man replies, All these I have kept from my youth. Don't laugh at him. He may well have done that. There's a Pharisee named Saul who became Paul, who was blameless. But notice, I think, here's something interesting. Jesus changes the order. So he actually ends with the one positive command. Did you notice that? He actually goes to number five. He ends with number five. Honor your father and mother. Why does Jesus do that? Well, what come before this? In verses 15 to 17, Jesus told us, you must become like a little child to inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus is showing, he was showing us last week, you can never be too little for the kingdom of God, but you can be too big. And the ruler doesn't get it if he saw that scene because he replies, all these I've kept from my youth. You hear what he's saying to Jesus? I'm a big person now. Jesus just said, no man is good, only God inviting him to view goodness from the heavenly perspective, but
But this man never leaves the horizontal and holds out all his accomplishments. He's saying, all my neighbors can verify I'm good. I'm ready for liftoff. Kids, you ever seen the movie Toy Story? Yeah, where Buzz Lightyear is busy arguing with Woody about whether he can fly. And to prove it, Buzz closes his eyes. He extends his arm and he leans over the edge of the bedpost and goes down and he happens to land with his eyes closed on an inflated ball that springs him up. He ends up shooting through a hoop, catches an airplane, circles around the room several times, and then he crashes on the bed. And all the toys cheer, he flew, he flew! To which Woody moans, no, that was falling with style. I say this with love to any not yet followers of Christ. You are falling and your time is running out. And falling with style is the best we can do apart from Christ. Just because you don't feel like you're in a free fall does not mean it's not true. Basing your reality on your feelings is a very Western notion and a very dangerous one. You know when you jump out of a plane, which I haven't done, once you reach maximum velocity going down free fall speed, your sensory perception gets tricked and you lose any sense that you're falling. You actually feel like you're floating, but the reality is you're not. You're hurtling at 118 miles an hour straight to earth. And it's only a matter of time before you hit the ground. Why would you choose to flap your arms and trust in your own goodness, which is not even yours, but God's lesser gift, and reject the Father's greater gift, the goodness of his perfect Son that he sent in love? Jesus, who took the fall for you. Lewis writes in this, he says, It costs God nothing so far as we know to create nice things. But to convert rebellious wills cost him crucifixion. Jesus went to the cross and felt the full force of God's wrath, the full impact of what our sin deserves. And he was raised from the dead so that at the moment you believe, you become a new creation in him, a new creation. The old passes away, 2 Corinthians 5.17 you see, God did not send Jesus to make men nice. God sent Jesus to make men new. And Lewis ends this chapter. He says, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. So to you who are struggling to do good, you're fighting your temper, you're fighting your temptations day after day, you're looking to Jesus, help me, help me, and your newfound niceness feels really awkward on you like a couple of lumps on your back, know that those lumps that feel uncomfortable now are just the beginning of a new pair of wings that will give you liftoff because God is at work changing you into a new creation. Let's get back to this good teacher and this ruler whose lesser, lesser earthly goodness is actually holding him down. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. 
and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. I really tried to imagine the face of this ruler. He's standing there holding up his good conduct report card, straight A's from his youth on. And Jesus says to him, you only lack one more thing to inherit eternal life. He came sincerely to Jesus with this longing on his heart. And Jesus says, you only have one more thing. Can you see his beaming face? As he waits for the last thing he needs to check off. And that thing, truck. I think he's the only person ever described in a situation with Jesus, a conversation where he leaves sad. Why was the rich ruler sad? Why was the rich ruler sad? He loved money more than Jesus. He loved his wealth more than he loved God. Jesus is actually turning to the first half of the Ten Commandments. Now, you must love God more than anything else. And this ruler has an idol that he just adores. And friends, there are as many idols in this room as there are people sitting in chairs right now. Let me ask you, what would be the look on your face if Jesus said to you, you can have eternal life, you can have heavenly treasure, but the condition is you must sell everything you have right now? What would be the look on your face? I know that's uncomfortable for us, some of us here. And I know some of you are waiting for me to say, which you've probably heard in sermons if you've heard this text before, Jesus doesn't call everyone to sell all they have, only this rich ruler. That's true. But I hope that doesn't comfort you too much. One commentator writes that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell their, all their possessions, gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue this command. The Bible teaches over and over again that the love of money, 1 Timothy 6.10, is the root of all kinds of evil and it has led many to wander from the faith and to eternal destruction. There are warnings all over the Bible about this. Unless this good upstanding ruler later changed his mind, and I hope he did, his wealth destroyed him. In 1860, there was a ship traveling from Panama to the United States, and on it was, there, was, there was this rich fellow who had actually bought 200 pounds of gold, and the ship began to go down. And when it was clear that this ship was going down, he strapped to himself as much gold as he thought he could tread water with. And both he and his gold, you know where it went, sunk to the bottom of the ocean. Let me ask you this. Did he have a hold of his gold, or did his gold have a hold of him? This ruler was going down while putting his trust in his goodness, but also his wealth. It was a God to him that provided him with security. I mean... Isn't it to us too? Isn't it being able to write a check or use your debit card, you know, to provide for your needs, to find happiness that you can buy, to provide for all that you want? It's like his goodness, isn't it? Because it keeps him from seeing his need for God. It keeps him from seeing how dependent he is. Wealth and goodness, it's the same thing. But Jesus wanted to put his finger on this because he wasn't getting the other. 
Wealth was his idol, and Jesus saw this thing, this wealth was alienating him from God, and it would eventually destroy him. Even the man sensed there was something wrong with him, something missing in his life. That's why he came to Jesus in the first place. I know you're intelligent enough to see the dangers of trusting in our own goodness, trusting in our own wealth. We have lessons on two sins we need to repent of that can keep you from eternal life. And we need to repent of them. If you want to have eternal treasure, the eternal treasure, which is Christ. But don't miss out on what's actually bigger here. What I just said, the treasure. Jesus called this ruler to leave his idol behind and to come and follow me. Jesus is inviting him to set his eyes on his person only to see who he is as God. So Jesus says, imagine the rest of your life with no money, all gone, no cars, no house, no toys, but in place of that, you get me. Will you place all your faith and trust in me and trust it will be better and will cure that longing in your soul? What if instead of walking away sad, this ruler gave up all he had to follow Jesus? Do you realize what he'll discover? Ultimate love. Ultimate love. That he would, what he gave up would be absolutely nothing. His little all would be nothing to the big all that Jesus came to give him. What Jesus gave up for him. He would actually in just a few chapters, chapter 23, he would witness his creator dying on the cross for him. And after that, he would see the resurrection glory, who Jesus truly was. The rich ruler would see he's not even a junior partner to King Jesus, the ultimate rich ruler. He's a teeny tiny little ruler with nothing next to the truly rich ruler coming to him. That his life, if he gave it up, all of it up, would only be a dim picture of the one who gave up the ultimate riches to come for the poor and to give it all for them. Men like himself. Friends, Jesus left it all to come and seek and save those who are lost and poor and naked and bleeding. This rich ruler would see that Jesus was not asking him to give up anything for his sake, that Jesus had not already given up in infinitely greater measure for his own good. And appropriating that love, taking that kind of <laughs> joy into his existence, to the core of his being, would be that thing that would fill all those deepest longings he had. Satisfy his soul. That's the bigger story of this text. And it's the true gospel, cured agreed, taking in Jesus' love. And we need this. We need this reminder of Jesus' love. Because everyone here, I would argue, has more wealth than what this rich ruler had. We have so, 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 so much more than they had in ancient times, even the richest. We're so, so wealthy. My biggest challenge in trying to make disciples for Jesus is that everyone walks in these doors and they're already well-seasoned disciples of consumerism. We should see Jesus looking at American unbelievers the way he does this ruler in verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
there's a belief that our culture embraces, even if we're not so insensitive to say it this way anymore, the belief that we must pity the poor. We must pity the poor. In fact, we might think that this is Jesus' point in telling the ruler to give his stuff away to them. That's a minor note here. That's not the major note. Jesus looks at this sad man. You know what he's telling us? Pity the rich. Pity the rich. He says it is so difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, pity the rich. You think Jesus is looking down on America, sadly? All the wealth we have and the decline in Christianity, you think there's a corresponding reason? why we have to be very careful about mercy ministry that's a whole nother sermon because rich people who don't realize they're poor are trying to help people who maybe have an advantage on them with their wealth it just can destroy lives that's another sermon but it's bad Jesus says pity the rich here we need to take that serious he says it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye I was thinking through this. This shook me to my core. It takes me five minutes to work a little piece of thread through a needle's eye. And Jesus says it's easier to work a thousand pound camel through that same little hole than for a rich man to get through heaven's gates. Jesus says pity the rich. I know there's all kinds of theories that Jesus doesn't mean this literally. You can change the letters to mean rope instead of a camel, or there might have been a small Jerusalem gate named Eye of the Needle. And a camel, if you take all the stuff off its back and it gets on its knees, it might be able to squeeze through. So then the point is, okay, be a humble camel, get rid of a few things. No, I think Chesterton was spot on when he quipped how men cannot stop trying to breed smaller camels and manufacture larger needles. We don't like to think that salvation is harder for us who have a lot. But the response of this crowd shows us this is exactly the case. Verse 26, Then those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? Another very good question. Another good question. And Jesus gives this wonderful, gracious answer. But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. In this day, it was actually believed that wealth was proof of God's favor. The prosperity gospel is as old as Genesis chapter 3. And Jesus just exploded the idea that they were in because their wealth was evidence. It is impossible for even the best in Israel, Jesus is saying, to inherit eternal life. But Jesus actually, he quotes from this wonderful promise in Genesis 18 to a childless old man named Abraham. What is impossible for man is possible with God. Jesus is reminding us that salvation is not a problem for God and the whole Bible testifies to it. Peter jumps in and he says what we're often thinking inside but we're too shy to say out loud. I love Peter. Just keep saying it, Peter, because I don't want to embarrass myself. He says it here. And Peter said, See, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you that there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God 
who will not receive many more times in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. Peter has felt the weight of the impossibility of salvation by works, and he heard the promise, but he still wants some reassurance that what they're doing will matter. Maybe you're there. And Jesus gives Peter, and he gives us this wonderful, wonderful promise. He puts a truly in the front there, a verily for you King James people. Anything that you give up in this life, Jesus says, for the sake of the kingdom of God, if you give it up for Jesus, will never result in any loss, but only to your gain. This is good news. This is a great promise. More gain than you could possibly imagine. Jesus says, Peter, I know you've given up a lot. Some of you have given up a lot. Here's the thing, Jesus says. You cannot possibly give me more when you're working for my kingdom than I can repay you. You cannot possibly, I will repay you so much more. You cannot do the equal. He says, I will repay you many times over what you've given up for me. And not just future in heaven, eternal life. Jesus actually says, but even now you're going to taste and see. This is a wonderful promise for a church plant. As we try to get this gospel ministry going, I know many of you have made many, 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 many sacrifices to bring the news of eternal life to a barren landscape. And Jesus says, good news. Your sacrifices, your labors, they're not in vain. I guarantee it. And there's something more I want to close with that applies to us individually. Ever find yourself wondering if the sacrifices for Jesus will truly benefit you? Do you think that you'll end up unfulfilled? Maybe unsatisfied? That you're going to miss out on something good and you're going to regret it? If you let go of something in order to take hold of Jesus, in order to follow him? You ever think that? No worries. Jesus says, no worries. And he says, let it go. We all have idols here we need to let go of. I don't know your idol any more than you probably know my idol. Maybe it's a vice. Maybe like alcohol. Maybe a drug. You need to let it go. Maybe it's a woman, a man, a boy or a girl. You need to let it go. (laughs) Never thought I'd see the day when I started quoting Elsa at the end of a sermon. It may be your wealth. You need to let it go. Maybe an activity. Let it go. A hobby. Let it go. A career. Let it go. You need to let it go. It may be a good thing. But if it's keeping you from coming and following Jesus, if it keeps you from working for the sake of his kingdom, let it go. And wonderfully, Jesus promises you, he guarantees it, that that loss will not be... lost for you in terms of fulfillment or anything else. No, it will be to your gain. And not just now, but for all of eternity, you'll be celebrating it. It's a certain promise, Jesus says, that you'll find the ultimate in fulfillment, the ultimate in satisfaction, the ultimate in meaning, by letting go of that to take greater hold of him and follow him wherever he calls you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what manner of love is this, that we should be called your children and such we are. We thank you that you have helped us 
by showing us our own goodness is not enough. You have helped us by showing us the things of this world that are fleeting and fading, that you have brought us to Jesus this morning. I pray that none of us will leave here holding on to anything that will keep us from pursuing your kingdom, that will keep us from following Jesus. I pray, Father, that we will confidently let it go, trusting Jesus' promise. I pray for the power of your Spirit to fill each and every one of us. And if anyone here has never truly grasped a hold of Jesus, has never heard his call to come and follow, and is still clinging on to that which is fleeting and fading, we ask and pray, be merciful to them. Open their eyes to see the goodness that is far greater than any goodness of this earth, the goodness that will last into eternity. Have mercy on them and have mercy on us as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.